You're listening to the film podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another episode of the Film Podcast. My guest today is responsible, along with his partner, for bringing to screen films like The King's Speech, The Railway Man, Shame, Ride Like a Girl, Suffragette, Carol, Brooklyn and Lion. Other films he's helped acquire and distribute over the years have won nine Palm Doors and have been nominated for 51 Academy Awards. Films that he's released include The Painted Veil, An Education, Blue is the Warmest Colour, Good Night and Good Luck, Super Size Me, Rabbit Proof Fence and Strictly Ballroom. Transmission Films is an Australian film distribution company based in Sydney, founded in 2008 by Andrew Mackey and Richard Payton. Andrew Mackey, welcome to the film podcast. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you on. So you've been going now for 13 years now. Does it seem that long? It seems longer. It seems longer. And I think we were incredibly fortunate when we started Transmission because we, we founded it as a partnership. We also founded a production company. We put two producers together and we swapped equity in each other's companies. They started the production. And one of the first films was The King's Speech. So when you start with that kind of high, you're sort of forever trying to kind of replicate it, knowing it's probably impossible. So that I think, you know, it, when I think back to The King's Speech, it feels so long ago now, but yeah, it's gone, it's gone. I mean, you'd be pinching yourself, though, back all those years ago and the King's speech turned up. Let's just talk about that. How did that project come across your desk so early on? I mean, it's interesting, that film, because it was written and intended to be a play. And it was actually given to Geoffrey Rush. In fact, I think Geoffrey Rush's mother came across it somehow. And in a roundabout way, it came to Ian Canning, who is one of the co-owners of Seesaw, which is our sister production company, via a UK producer he knows called Gareth Unwin. So Ian sent it to us and said, I found this script. It's a true story, royal family with an Australian connection. And he gave a basic pitch. And even at that pitch, we were like, wow, this is, this is gold. This is like, not only is it sort of could be awards friendly, but it has real commercial potential. That's exactly how it panned out. That happens so rarely. Yeah, it was just one of those projects where the moment it arrived in our inbox, we just thought, wow, this is a company builder. So how did the actual distribution of that sort of work? Because you're sort of a new distribution company at that stage, kind of new boys on the block, so to speak, back then. We were new boys on the block. And while we'd been working in distribution for a long time, we needed some muscle. So we did a deal with Paramount. We partnered with them in Australia and New Zealand. They put up a lot of the capital, basically, to um, acquire and release movies. And King's Speech was one of the first movies they invested in, a whole, along with a bunch of others. But their involvement and support from the first day enabled us to kind of enter the market with a real bang and, just, and, and a lot of muscle. And what was, just refresh my mind, what was the box office take for that film and the P&A spend? Uh, look, in Australia, it was, it was around 32 million or something. It's funny because it was a Christmas release. It was the biggest film that Christmas. And it was just meant, I think everyone just thought it would be the kind of a, a successful movie, but it would only do like a fifth of what it eventually did if we were lucky. 
but it ended up beating all these major studio tentpoles and blockbusters. And it's interesting here, and I'm not sure if this is still true, but it was the highest grossing Australian film never to reach the number one spot. It just kind of played on and on and on and on. In the end, I think we spent three or four million in P&A. And yeah, and the final result was, was extraordinary. And what was the worldwide take for the box office on that film? Close to around 400 million, I think. Pretty amazing. And it's, I think at the time, it was one of the highest grossing independent films ever. You know, it's interesting if you actually were at the same point of releasing that film in our current market with streamers, the box office take of that film would be completely different. Do you feel that that would be the case? Yeah. Look, it's a good question. I mean, I reckon if you released it today in the current landscape, if it did 150 million globally, you'd probably be delighted. It's interesting, when, when that film was being financed, there was a lot of competition for it. In the end, it, it was a kind of the Weinstein company and a patchwork of independent companies. But I think if that film went to market today, there would be an intense bidding war and it would probably end up with you know, an Amazon or a, a Netflix probably. It would be very difficult. And even at the time, I know that one of the studios made an extremely aggressive multi-territory offer to take out the world. And we were like, you can't do this. You know, you've got to keep this independent, retain control of it. And how surprising has it been over the last three or four years with the way that the disruption through the streamers on theatrical releases has played out? How much of a nightmare has that been for you? <sighs> it isn't a total nightmare. And I think it's kind of enforced, I reckon, a decade's worth of change and disruption in about two years, probably mostly due to COVID. But for us, I think we work with streamers, like we're predominantly a theatrical film distributor. Cinema is our lifeblood. Playing films in cinemas is where a majority of our revenue comes from. But the streaming thing has been a blessing as well in that it's replaced a lot of ancillary revenue like DVD that's just fallen away. We sell films to the streamers as originals and that has provided, particularly during the whole COVID nightmare, that's provided a lifeline for us. Um, but I also think we're in this kind of upswing where it's a, it's a land grab for various streamers. At some point, there needs to be consolidation between all these competing streamers. I do think through all of this, the independent business, we're like cockroaches. It's like cockroaches that survive a nuclear war. We'll still be there. And I think to fund independent films, the lifeblood of indie films is being funded with private equity. And if streamers are financing films up front, then there's no future revenue stream. That's pretty much it. I think the, the business model really is for an independent film is to finance it and then probably sell it to a streamer later for a lot of money or go the traditional independent path. But I still think keeping streamers ideally out of an indie finance plan is really the only way to attract significant private investment because you're selling to them that it's going to be the next King's Speech or Lion and there's going to be all this upside. And that's how you attract private investment and that's how indie films get made. Whereas just selling it up front to a streamer, there's, you know, there usually isn't a lot of attractive return for private investors to participate. So it's, yeah, I, I do think the indie space 
has a very necessary and relevant position in this new streaming landscape. And that's what we're, you know, that's, and that's how we see our business model. And we look, transmission five years ago, we forged a first look deal with Amazon Studios. We wanted to be close to the streamers and find a way to work with them. So we were putting up a percentage of a budget for a lot of Amazon films like Suspiria and a lot of very initial Amazon theatrical movies when they were kind of supporting a theatrical window. And then strategically, they moved on and they really just wanted films that could go to streaming much quicker. So that kind of joint venture we had with them wasn't quite working. But now we're finding ways to work with the streamers, such as we're doing now with The Power of a Dog and Netflix, where we come to the table as a distribution partner. We handle the theatrical. We make some money by doing that. And they also finance the film and it enables them to tap into local funding subsidies and and position films for awards season and also satisfy the home territory and the filmmaker that wants the film to be seen theatrically. You know, I think that the streamers like the Netflix and the Amazon Primes, they were quite staunch early on in terms of theatrical. They were sort of saying, no, we'll just, that's not our space. Let's just take it straight, you know, onto the platform. But now there seems to be a bit of a softening, particularly for distributors like yourselves, where you get this opportunity for that window of theatrical. Is that the way that you see that's sort of been playing out? Yeah. I mean, Netflix initially were. The sort of rhetoric was very anti-theatrical, whereas Amazon were, I remember particularly with Ted Hope running the production, it was very supportive of a theatrical window. But I think what COVID has done now is completely grayed the line about how long a film should sit on the shelf before it hits VOD. And I think that's, that is a good thing. I think a slightly shorter theatrical window is due and, and I think the consumer demands it now. I mean, one of the issues we face, I guess, is, and we've always faced it, but it feels like we're facing this more than ever now is piracy. You know, it's always hard to quantify these things, but on average, I think it's somewhere between 10 and 15% of every box office result is um, reduced from loss to piracy because so many HD copies of films now are kind of available due to their availability on the VOD or SVOD somewhere in the world because of the short windows. So... You know, it's it's a it's a renewed challenge. I mean, I don't know how you combat. I don't think you can beat piracy. I think it's something must coexist with. It's become a heightened issue now. I think, given you know, films, particularly some of those big Disney films, go to SVOD day one in the US, but not necessarily in other markets. So these other markets are competing with um, its availability on torrents. I'm quite interested in what's happening in the space of, uh, let's take a YouTube. There seems to be quite a number of films now that are on different platforms but run advertising across them. So you don't have to pay to be on a streamer, but you've got to sit through those commercials, which I don't think that was really something that was happening a few years ago as to what's happening now. Yeah, I mean, that's funny, isn't it? There's AVOD platforms, they're called, which is advertising video on demand. We're still at kind of the experimentation phase of how many ways you can take VOD to an audience. At one end, you've got advertising-driven free content, but you've got to watch a bunch of ads. And then obviously, at the other end, it's premium video on demand or subscription. And I think the market is still settling into where they can maximize the consumer revenue. And I think we're also reading, reaching potentially that place where people are starting to kind of acknowledge, wow, I've suddenly got seven different subscriptions for various video services 
and they're probably spending fifty to eighty dollars a month and working out that that's probably what they used to spend and complain on a traditional cable package. So I think further packaging and consolidation in that space is likely, but that's where these new operators, particularly AVOD, and I think low-price SVOD, more niche-targeted SVOD, can find possibly their own niche. And having a look at transmission films, when you look at your slate, I think it's fair to say that you're buying more mature, serious types of films that are awards-driven and that seem to be skewed to more women in their demo. Is that fair? Yeah, that's absolutely what we do. I mean, that's um, we started thinking that way about three, four years ago. What we were seeing were, particularly in this market down under, and particularly in New Zealand, there's a demand theatrically for British period drama. And your audience are kind of mature senior women who go to the cinema pretty much every week. They're driven just as much by the outing as they are by what's showing they don't pirate. They just kind of want to get out of the house. It's not a kind of film that generally we've been competing with those streamers or studios. They, they, they're not that interested in that demographic, although they're kind of starting to be. So, yeah, and female skewing films, we just find if you can get the right project, they're just a little safer because it's hard to get men to go to the cinema. <laughs> With their mates. It's sort of, whereas girls do it together as more of a social thing and they tend to be the decision makers and they're just a little bit safer. That's what we found anyway when, we, when we're trying to kind of choose films to take on. We found the female audience to be a little more reliable and particularly that old audience. I mean, if, if you have a look at our website, you'll just see it's, we're basically all in on the grey army. Yeah, well, I know what you mean in terms of getting women into the cinema. You've only got to look at Fifty Shades and Sex in the City. It can be argued, well, those sort of fluff movies, but boy, did they generate some money. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And it's interesting here and in New Zealand, compared to the US and the UK, horror films, particularly male-driven horror films, just don't work as well. I don't know what it is, and there's probably a psychological thesis to be done on the subject, but... The breakout horrors work, but as a, those sort of middle ground and lower tier horror movies that can work in the US just tend not to work as well in this market. You know, there's a, a lot of indie filmmakers listening right now to the podcast who, for the most part, for them, they just glaze over when considering all of the machinations involved with how to make and get a film up. And a lot of the time, filmmakers can overcomplicate, you know, the issue of how to secure interested parties like a distributor. Because distributors are just as flawed as the rest of us, I guess. They will pick winners and losers because it's a risk business. Nothing is guaranteed. But as filmmakers, we are responsible for attracting people into the project. A lot of effort goes into casting and putting the crew together. And maybe, how can I put it, maybe not the same effort is put in when we're engaging with a distributor. We might not be able to express what the story that we're telling is. So a pitch that is vague and unclear is like a real estate agent not knowing how to sell a multi-million dollar waterfront property perhaps. So perhaps let's break down the process of what you are looking for from a filmmaker when they pitch you, you and Richard, at Transmission Films. 
Yeah, so a distributor like us, people tend to come through our door pretty late in the process generally. And in fact, it's usually like a week or two before a local government funding deadline. We're looking for projects. They tend to come through the door when it's at script stage, when there's a director attached, usually when there's cast attached or a cast list and probably some heads of department. So you kind of, you get a pretty decent package. Like as a distributor, we feel like we're, we're investing in films that will come to the screen probably in about two years' time. So you're sort of trying to second guess two years down the track. As a filmmaker, you're developing a script for a project that may not hit the screen reasonably until another four or five years' time. So you sort of, this is moving target where you're trying to second guess whether your idea is going to be of market interest. And you're right, distributors get it wrong all the time. So you've got this dual thing where not only are you trying to make a project that interests you and has integrity and that you feel has something new to say, but you're trying to second guess what a distributor might want And the distributor might not even know what he wants. He might just be reactive to what else is going on and what else is working of that day. So it's for me, it's it's a kind of difficult thing to suggest to pay too much attention to the market right now. Ultimately, I feel like you need to come up with an idea or have an approach to your film that is unique and is something you are particularly passionate about seeing through for that length of time, that's just as important. But I do think having a story hook, I mean, whether you're making a kind of a Sundance indie or intending to make a kind of a broader movie, you still need an idea that I think can compete in a market that is so crowded with material from the streaming sector and theatrically and from everywhere that it's a sea of content now. And even the ways that as a distributor, we used to advertise our movies you saw a poster on a bus or on a TV commercial, you think, oh, it's a new movie coming out. It's going to be at the cinema. But now we're competing with streamers who throw more money at streaming premieres. So it's even harder to make a theatrical film feel like an event than it used to be. You kind of, it's difficult to outspend. And I feel like now our kind of the way we've used to approach the market has been kind of co-opted for streaming premieres as well. You've got to say to yourself, is my idea going to cut through? Has, is there something unique about it that will um, help it sell itself? And the streamers in particular are not looking to work hard on movies. They want films that can go to market and arrive with a bang because they have a brand or a star or some built-in marketability where they don't have to do too much. But for independence, I think the opportunities lie where streamers have this global, generally have a fairly global perspective And for us as independents, as it always has been this way, we look for the opportunities that are localised or that sort of maybe are too hard or fall between the cracks for those multi-territory players. So sometimes we have to take risks to survive and, and sometimes those risks can sort of overpay in terms of return. I hadn't actually thought of what you've just said there, particularly around the the spend, like social media now, some of the money, it feels like you would be pouring it or just burning money because they're so crowded with the advertising revenue. I remember reading something a couple of weeks ago about Facebook and I forget the numbers, but the way in which Facebook is optimized now for advertising, it is very hard to try and quantify your spending. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's the thing. Streamers are very data-driven, but theatrical distributors, just by nature of the business, we, we, we have so little data. 
we don't know who comes to see our films. <laughs> That's the problem. And also you can mount a comprehensive social grassroots campaign for your movie. But once your movie's released, all that work you put into building that audience, it's difficult to carry that forward. So it's like each time you're starting from scratch. Whereas the streamers obviously have this kind of this great competitive data advantage. And I completely understand why they're trying to keep that as concealed and secretive as possible. It's not an advantage we have. Ultimately, even at an exhibition level, there's a sort of a measure of data collected, but it's not something that's sort of openly shared. So yeah, it's, it's tough. And what it all comes back to is the distributors like us, we jump on projects where we have a gut reaction and that's, that's the barometer that, that generally we, we have to rely on. And sometimes it's the projects that kind of defy logic that work. So sometimes you just have to take a punt. So there you go, filmmakers. Defy something that defies logic might be a film that transmission films could be interested in. <laughs> easy, easy. No, look, it's I, I look. I think ultimately you have to you've got to get that script right because distributors and financing partners, government agencies, unless they're in the business of development, they don't want to read a script twice. So I think when it goes out there, make sure it's as good as possible. Make sure it's been Robert McKeed to its teeth and just rewrites and rewrites and. You kind of get one shot with most funding partners. So coming back to one of the considerations for a distributor to make, that is how wide you go with releasing a film. How far do you spend pushing the film out to as wide an audience as possible? So we've talked a little bit about that, but how do you typically assess that risk and try to mitigate losses? So the, the process for a distributor is we look at a cut of a film. We all say to ourselves, what's it going to take at the box office? We come up with a number. And this is, this is a discipline that is the kind of the core of our business, really. It's a bit of a, it's like a sport in our company where you just have to guess other people's movies, how they're going to open until you refine your ability to kind of get fairly close to what might happen. You're not always right, but Sometimes you can be more right than not. That's what we rely on, being more right than not. So we pick a number that we think is safe. We work backwards from that number. Then we come up with a number of how much we need to spend, which is P&A, to achieve that number. This all goes into a spreadsheet. I mean, the spreadsheet will tell us how much we can afford to put up for the movie and make a little bit of profit as well. And we will look at that financial model. It's a pretty simple model. And just look at the sensitivity of it. If it doesn't achieve that box office number, but less, will we lose a lot of money or will we break even? We try to make our low scenario at least kind of a break even. And from that kind of simple financial process, and it's very much a back of the envelope approach, we sort of make a decision whether to jump on board or not. So that's, that's pretty much it. You asked about how wide we go. Again, I mean, we, it depends on the film. But we tend to go as wide as we can. Um, release costs aren't what they used to be. We're not making 35 mil, expensive 35 mil prints now. It's much more digital. So it's a little cheaper to go wider. The other thing is we used to be a big fan of platform releasing where you start small, let word of mouth build, and then you build, build, build. And that was very effective, particularly for the kind of films we do. Release costs or DCPs replacing prints, and it's much cheaper for distributors to 
physically get the film into cinemas. The temptation has been for everyone just to go as many screens as they can. What's that done is it's crowded the cinemas and your film, even if it's doing really well, there's so many films being programmed into cinemas that you kind of get programmed off sooner than you could. There isn't always space just to keep playing on and on. You know, we've had films that have kind of come off because four weeks after it's open, there's probably been five or six films a week opening and eventually you just lose sessions until you kind of just, you lose natural momentum because your film's only on one session a day, even though it's doing quite well. So that's, that for us has become a, a catalyst for the industry generally. And this happened probably five or six years ago where distributors just tend to go wider, faster, to grab the money and try and get in and out because there's just so much, so much being screened by exhibition. And North America tends to drive international. In terms of Australian films, how much international momentum can you get without that North American market? Look, for us, the British market is almost as important for the kind of films we do. But the American market is still a major driver for a distributor. It's such a risky marketplace to play in because your release costs, unlike here, are exponentially bigger, not just because of the scale of the country, but it's, there's just so many cities to open in as well compared to a country like Australia or New Zealand. So yeah, their, their costs to release films are, are kind of exorbitantly high and that, that becomes a major factor. But look, America is still kind of, I guess, the, the benchmark that a lot of the independents look to when they're buying a film. Does it have US distribution? Is there a commitment to release it in America? Is there a commitment to an awards campaign? All those things that are driven by a US-based distributor. So for any indie filmmaker having a listen in on the podcast and they've just taken their film out to a whole bunch of film festivals, what do you say to somebody that maybe looking for a distributor but is widely going out to a lot of these smaller type indie film festivals trying to sort of gain some sort of momentum? Look, I think the important thing to do is try to get the most high-profile festival you can early on because if you play smaller festivals and then the bigger festivals will want a premiere. So if, in the first instance, don't blow your opportunity to get into a bigger festival. That's, I guess, one piece of advice I'd give. The other piece of advice is it's probably worth, rather than shopping it around, is try to get a sales agent. There's a lot of these companies and they handle, you know, they all have their own niches and specialize in certain types and sizes of movies. But a sales agent will do all that for you. And you'll be far better placed by having a sales agent rep your film to the festivals because they know the politics between the various festivals and the timings. And they also have a relationship with the programmers generally because they're bringing films to them all the time. So if you can, get a sales agent early on. And how optimistic do you feel for the next 18 months to two years is looking for the industry? Look, I'm a sort of a, for better or worse, I'm a bit of an eternal optimist. But I do feel on the other side of COVID, there's a great opportunity for independent films. I feel the, the landscape's becoming so dominated by these global streaming companies that will think like global corporate companies. And that will mean opportunities to create films that I think the market will demand, but that streamers will possibly want to acquire later for much more than they would have invested in them up front. And I also think the independent ecosystem has always delivered the boldest sort of 
genre-changing, evolutionary kind of filmmaking momentum. You know, it's no surprise that generally most Oscar nominations now are from indie or at least in spirit independent films. So, yeah, I, I, I just feel so optimistic about the indie landscape. And I sort of feel if, you're, if you could survive the last few years as an independent filmmaker, then you probably can survive anything. And what about some of the production values that you're seeing from a distribution point of view, say for, I don't know, over the last three or four years, I see a lot of really, really good production stuff coming through. Yeah. I mean, the challenge has been um, COVID costs, which can add like 15% to the budget. So yeah, look, there's so many new technologies for filmmakers. I mean, I just look at someone like Sean Baker, who made a film on his phone and it launched his career. We're looking for bold new voices and bold new ideas. I don't think the audience necessarily demands everything to look expensive and slick. I think they're looking for authenticity. I do wonder sometimes, the streamers are putting out so many new TV series in particular. A lot of them feel like they're longer than they should be. So I think smart, clever, authentic storytelling will always find an audience. And I guess that's why I feel sort of optimistic about the business. And I also think while they're kind of still recovering, I think the theatrical experience will return. I think we all love this convenience of seeing new movies at home. I think people will still want to go to the cinema. I think the onus now is on cinemas to create their own space and improve their offerings. And I I do think audiences will return. I hope so. (laughs) We're all in trouble if we can't get back into the cinema. And at at the time of recording this podcast, of course, we've got this variant which may end up sort of putting a bit of a dampener on the party for next year in terms of COVID and the mutation. So let's hope that we can all get into the cinema at some stage. But if that mutant ends up being something that's going to affect us for next year, it just means that maybe next year is going to be a little bit more tougher. I know, don't say that. <laughs> I mean, look, we, over, over in Australia, we've had, for the last two years, we've only released four or five movies, but every time we've released a movie, there's been a lockdown somewhere in Australia that's impacted our release. So our next release is February. So if there's going to be a lockdown again because of a new variant, I, that's, that's when it's going to be, yeah. Well, it's good to hear the enthusiasm is still strong there, Andrew. That is coming through loud and clear. There will be filmmakers that are thinking, I'd like to get in touch with Transmission Films. How do I do that? What should I do? What sort of package do I need to put forward? Can you talk to all of that in terms of our audience? Yeah, look, just send an email through our website. We're pretty good at responding and generally we will respond to material. We like it to be fairly packaged so script obviously but also an idea of director and cast and and sort of a tangible your tangible plan really to finance it and that's that is often one of the things when we look at a project is can this be financed so we're drawn to projects i guess that feel like the producer has a really good grasp on actually how they can raise the money to make the movie Andrew, it has been great to get your insights into film distribution. I know that the filmmakers would have taken away some really good pointers away from our discussion. So thank you for that. And thanks so much for coming on to the film podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
You've been listening to The Film Podcast with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.